Christopher Brown is the author of Tropic of Kansas, Rule of Capture, and his new book is Failed State. It's the second in his dystopian lawyer series. The first was Rule of Capture. Thank you for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me, Rick. You know, I, I really, really had so much fun reading this book. And what was interesting to me was that your vision of utopia was really very unique. Um, but let's just, for, for our listeners, could you kind of set up the world that you built in the first two books? Because this bo- world, too, is very unique. The only thing that I can think of in literature that it really compares to is the way that uh, George Orwell built his world of 1984 in a book that uh, is, he didn't want to, but is often rumored to have, he wanted to title it 1948. Right. Exactly. Cause that's when he wrote it. Right. Exactly. Um, well, yeah. So the, the world of this book is a kind of uh, my fun house mirror version of the USA essentially. And uh, it's a USA in which the kind of the continuing uh, uh, kind of story driver across the three books is a breakdown in in uh our politics to the point of a kind of second american civil war and so the first book tropic of kansas is the story of two people caught up in a a a popular uprising uh against a kind of authoritarian american regime uh rule of capture uh tells the story of a sort of rundown criminal defense lawyer uh, defending political dissidents as that regime is coming to power. And now failed state takes on, again, in a kind of standalone story, but that also works in continuity with those other books, the sort of aftermath of the uprising. And uh, as different factions are trying to kind of build a, a sustainable future from the ruins of the present. You know, one of the things that that struck me right off the bat was that you have a, a you call this book in, in a sense a dystopia as opposed to um, or a utopia. Your series is 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 built as a, the dystopian lawyer, and uh, well, let, let's talk a little bit about Donnie because I absolutely do love Donnie. He's one of the most interesting characters in fiction. He is seriously flawed in ways that I must uh, I, and admit I find myself, you know, identifying with him in his most flawed decisions and moments. So talk about creating this character who's a hero but filled with flaws that he himself understands. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, he... I don't know. I see. I see lots of myself and all of us in in, in his uh, failings. Yeah, Donnie Chemo is my ta- is you know my 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 uh, uh, my take on the 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 kind of the burnout plaintiff's lawyer, the Better Call Saul archetype, or the also the the um, you know To Kill a Mockingbird, you know Atticus Finch archetype. Uh, of the underdog lawyer, he's he's uh, you know he's your your standard uh, strip mall billboard lawyer, 
transplanted into a dystopian version of reality. And uh, and in Rule of Capture, he's working as a as a kind of a quasi public defender, taking court appointments, uh, uh, and uh, and kind of being one of those sort of criminal defense lawyers. Who at the beginning of the story, uh, you kind of realize is more a servant of the of the prosecutors and the judges than he really is a defender of his clients. He's just kind of getting by, kind of a loser. And by the time we get to failed state, he's matured as a character. He's become a kind of a, a well-known, uh, you know, uh, kind of somewhat flamboyant defender of political dissidents during this despotic regime. And now he's kind of, uh, but now he's made some mistakes again. He's ticked off a lot of his former clients who are now partly in charge. And he's eking out a living trying to basically get justice for war crimes in you know, a kind of a rundown state court in Dallas. You know, uh, one of the things, you're, you yourself are a lawyer, and I thought it was so interesting to write science fiction where what you're kind of inventing are laws of a broken future, and they're broken laws as well. So, um, and also, too, just creating a lawyer, because there's one thing I remember where somebody recalls a sign that he had a billboard that he had um i fought the law and you won <laughs> this sounds like something you might see today yeah well you know you should you need uh, to do that right now <laughs> get yourself a billboard well, that's yeah, a great billboard i mean i pra- i do i do practice practice law and write in an old airstream trailer so it's just a matter i and people used to tease me how I should take my trailer to the like scene of the accident or whatever uh, and just wait for the clients. And then I found out there actually is a lawyer in Austin who meets his clients in an Airstream trailer. Um, the uh, I mean, it's a lot of fun. I mean, we love to I am a lawyer. I've been practicing law for more than a couple of decades now and have kind of met every type of lawyer under the sun. I had never really thought about lawyers as literary archetypes or as types of character uh until i was working on tropic of kansas and one of my one of my characters was in jail and i had exhausted the uh uh, number of escapes that were plausible to have in in any one book and so i had these guys call a lawyer to try to get the guy out and um i was like oh yeah what would those billboard lawyers be like in dystopia and i think the answer is you know on one level they kind of be the same you know it's like it's it's like uh uh i mean the lawyer in american fiction i mean there are two archetypes there's the sort of paladin of the unjustly downtrodden right of the wrongfully accused right the atticus fence type which you know isn't really real in most instances or if they exist they're kind of much more schlubby and run down. They're like the public interest lawyers who doggedly work those kinds of cases. Um, uh, you know, even when the deck is just fully stacked against them, like, like the, the people who are down there fighting those unwinnable asylum cases at the border right now. Um, and then there's the, yeah, the billboard lawyer, the, the kind of sleazy, uh, you know, the lawyers who's more about the fee they're going to get than actually winning the case. And, um, and so my guy, Donnie, is kind of a combination of those two. Um, and, you know, lawyers are stressed out by nature. Most lawyers, if they're they're always either 
so busy they can't keep up or they don't have enough work and they're all freaked out about where the next case is going to come from. And so Johnny tends to uh, party a little hard, which also leads to some bad decisions and uh, makes for a lot of fun. And, and it's sort of interesting because, you know, science fiction is full of law, you know, from like Asimov's law of robotics to the prime directive, but it's really short on lawyers. And <laughs> you're right. And, you know, there's like, you know, I mean, you have to really work hard to find a lawyer anywhere in science fiction. There's a few like there's like an episode of the original series of Star Trek. that's sort of your typical space lawyer. And it's just like F. Lee Bailey in space. You know, it's just like there's no imagination to it. And I think it's because it's like uh, this is the guy he's defending Captain Kirk in a court martial. And the first time he appears on scene, he's like in one of those like starbase conference rooms surrounded by actual 20th century legal books, which sort of illustrates metaphorically by accident, like how bad we are at imagining the future of justice and the future of law. And I think that's the problem is that like, you think about like a courtroom drama, it's so intrinsically uh, tethered to the past and even to the deep past that trying to like spring that forward into the future in a way that feels authentically futuristic is really hard. And so, um, digging into the past, I think, as I played with in failed state, proves to be rich territory to kind of play with that. You know, um, one of the things that uh, I really loved about this book was your creation. You take Donnie to uh, a utopian state within this world that you created, which is set in uh, New Orleans. Your uh, utopia, and one of the things that is becomes quickly apparent about your version of utopia is utopia is not easy. I mean, every other version of utopia, it's kind of like being on vacation with robots, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or or some kind of like slave labor to do all the work. And your utopia is as much work as a dystopia, which I think it really makes sense. So talk about that sensibility that utopia need not be like a, a, a vacation, but it, it's hard work. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it's never a true utopia in the sense of like an ideal society. It's always going to be flawed if you're writing in any way grounded in realism. But, um, but yeah, the utopia of this community in New Orleans, it's, um, you know, I think it's I, I was explaining to someone recently how I realized working on this that utopia is not a place; it's a decision. It's like these people have decided to um, to try to craft a future they can actually live in. Uh, and of course, what they realize is, as I sort of realized, is that um, if you really want to, and, and bear in mind this this is a world in which the kind of overarching problem that the characters are all presented with is climate crisis and the kind of the, the, the challenges of sustaining an environment in which you can like literally live is just sustaining the habitat for humanity. Um, they realize that, you know, you have to, if you really want to solve our problems, that those techno utopian kinds of futures you're talking about that are, 
the apex of civilization and of technological in- achievement that uh, maximize human leisure, right? Uh, where we're all kind of lying around like the Eloy. Um, toga futures. That, yeah, toga futures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> toga futures. Yeah, where you're just like eating, you know, bonbons of the future. I um, want the toga future. <laughs> There's a good t-shirt yeah, in that well, one. Yeah, where's my toga future? Yeah, it's kind of that's even better than where's my flying car. Um, the the they realize that you have to instead of going down that path, um, which is actually the path to further ruin, uh, they have you have to go and kind of basically re-engineer the mistakes we made, like at the agricultural revolution, right? That that the whole fundaments of civilization of like grain monoculture and urbanism and the condensation of people into you know big cities and all of those things that that's kind of when history went on the wrong path and that you got to go try to reawaken some measure of your true nature as a hunter and forager and nomad to try to get to where uh you can kind of live in authentic balance individually and as a community and as a, and as a, you know, as an eco is an ecology or as an ecosystem. And of course that's an easy thing to kind of like theorize about a very hard thing to do in practice. And so that's how those people end up uh, doing what looks like a lot more work than the people are doing in Dallas, which is the kind of counter utopia, which is like the, you know, where, you know, a world of corporate sovereignty and, you know, uh, Plant genetics is the path to the future. One of the things that a science fiction does well, or can do, that's really fun and makes it fun to read, is evoke a sense of wonder. Now, when you're setting stuff in a world like yours that's largely dystopian, where you know the world, the parts of the world that haven't gone to hell have looked under hell and found someplace even worse to go. A sense of wonder is not necessarily um, easy to evoke, but you do it in a really interesting way. And this is, I think, the superpower of this book. Um, And and I'm going to quote Cory Doctorow because he says that science fiction at its best predicts the present. And what I found myself again and again as I read parts of this book, because in this book, you understand things from the perspectives of the characters within it. And the understandings that the characters had, that they were formed from, are, are the kind of things that are now just breaking all across our society and our world, which is, uh, are these understandings of you know racial injustice, sexual injustice, all, all the things that, that are just in the headlines today are part of the things that your characters have grown out of. So when they speak to them, it's just like we're hearing the end result of, you know, some of the changes that we're going through right now spoken by, you know, prophets. It it is a sense of wonder at how screwed up we are, in a sense. And I think that's a really tough thing to to bring off. So talk about, you know, predicting that the, presenting the future, but also as, as, you know, the present. 
Wow. I mean, the, I mean, these books are all sort of in my mind set in an alternate version of the present, really. Um, this one failed state is a little bit more into that kind of day after tomorrow near future, but certainly the problems that the characters are, are, are facing are in the kind of the, the general cultural landscape are equivalent to our own. And, um, Do you have to, uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, and so do you have to like pare back your inclinations as a someone who works in the world of the imaginative and the inventive to pare back your inclination to like pepper the books with more invented science? Or does that, or does this like, because these, like, as you say, they do seem like a, a, you know, an alternate present, but it's really richly imagined. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to fill it up with the material of the real world, mm -hmm. but to do so in a way that um, looks at the real world with a science fictional lens. You know, it's the kind of thing that, like, you know, writers that were big influences on me, like J.G. Ballard, were so good at of looking at the world you're living in and drawing out the, the weird, the wondrous or the under-examined. Um, and so, um, you know, like looking at, at, at the way in which um, all of those kinds of problems you were talking about, racial injustice and wealth inequality and, um, and the kind of the more immediate environmental issues are all rooted in our damaged relationship with the land on which we live. And... Um, and trying to um, trying to get back to the idea of the future of like I mean we, we were talking earlier about that sort of you know toga the toga future and that kind of you know classic golden age science fiction or even you know kind of uh, you know the science fiction of you know of, you know, my youth in the 60s and 70s before it, you know, starts becoming more like patently dystopian. And really even up to the 80s, science fiction was always presenting a mostly romanticized and exciting vision of the future. And it was like a promise. It was like the promise that the society gave us, civilization gave us, that we're on the path forward to a better future. And it's, it's there in in techno culture, it's there in popular culture, and it was there in our political culture, right? These progressive visions, and all of that has kind of like disappeared from our discourse. You know, I mean, I I think you really are hard pressed to find like particularly optimistic ideas of the future anymore, or any just even kind of like a positive vision of like a future you would want to live in. There's some in science fiction, but in, like in our politics, there's no longer any kind of like progressive utopian vision. And so um, that's what this book is trying to do is to take those like 
you know, those kinds of like science fictional observations of the present moment uh, to try to start really digging into like, how could we from this material where we have inherited, you know, for good or for bad, build a kind of a future that we or our kids or grandkids would really want to, to live in. And, and that, that partly comes from that kind of exercise you're talking about. It also comes from like some, something else I think science fiction is pretty good at, which is like reaching into the deep past mm-hmm. to kind of like, to kind of like, uh, find, you know, answers as to the more nearer or, you know, medium term or even more distant future. You know, you're right. One of the things that it never occurred to me until you mentioned it just now, but a lot of science fiction shows the future as having a lot more similarity to the past. You know, either the future is like this bucolic kind of garden world or, you know, where everybody lives in harmony. You know, it doesn't often show us uh, a future where, where, you know, you know, uh, the, the, the cities are, you know, really clean and everything's nice. I mean, so one of the things that, that uh, struck me about this book is that your ability to use the language of the present to create a, a present that's unlike ours. And I think one of the things you get at in this and in, in all of these novels is one of the things that we're just now realizing is that um, the idea that there is no new normal and normal is a, a, something that is an artifact now of the past. Because the change that has come upon us, the rate of change in in the present, is so fast that we no longer have there any assurance that today is going to be like yesterday, or that tomorrow will be like today. Because there are, the changes might come so fast and so be so grand because we humans have acquired you know a, a big footprint. It doesn't take all it takes is one guy to throw the switch on the nuclear football, and we're really living in a different world. <laughs> and there are quite a few guys who seem really inclined to do that at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very hard to get uh, to imagine the future when you can barely get a beat on the present, day to day or week to week, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if um, uh, I don't know if you read Agency, the new William Gibson novel that came out earlier this year. But, you oh, know, that's yeah. he's talked about it at length. And here he talks about he you know, he set out to write more of like a contemporary Silicon Valley kind of techno thriller that was sort of his answer to all these AI movies and books. And then he real after the election, he said he realized that the that the the world in which that book took place no longer existed and then he had to you know you have to like figure out some kind of a trick to even like imagine the present of the world in which you're writing and and that was true you know uh, uh 
before the pandemic. And now it's just like, you know, with uh, uh, the disruption that this represents of this kind of like complete, you know, interregnum of our reality, um, uh, trying to figure out kind of what comes beyond that is, uh, uh, or even just to write stories that are, um, that draw people in as having the kind of a stamp of the real, right? Is tricky. And in this book, I'm sort of lucky in that the world of this book, Failed State, is in some respects kind of like what we're dealing with now. It's kind of a, it's a little bit of a broken, it's, you know, it's the aftermath of a nation breaking crisis. Um, it's one where there's a little more, you know, a little more blood has been spilled. Uh, people have died not from disease, but from violence. But um, yeah, we'll wait three months and we'll see how different yeah, it right. is. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, that's the other thing is, yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> the last two years, it's just, as I've been writing these books and it's, it, and, and, uh, I, it, it is frequently commented by others and observed by me, especially this summer of like these weird, like parallels where I guess, yeah, if you're doing a good job of like drawing out emergent parts of the present, they have a knack of like showing up on the news, but, uh, the scenes this summer of like, you know, outside the militarized White House, these, you know, this like revolutionary mob taking on federal troops or of the scenes in Portland of these people being rounded up and, um, you know, by unmarked, you know, uh, uh, by unidentified law enforcement, uh, you know, secret police into like Chrysler minivans, unmarked Chrysler minivans. These things are like eerily like, uh, uh, resonant with the, the events in Tropic of Kansas and um, and Rule of Capture, the book from last summer, and so I can only hope that some of the utopian elements of this book are uh, proved to be, you know, uh, proved to also be anticipating, you know, things that'll be coming into fruition. So um, I certainly think that the idea of like rewilding our cities. And of like a kind of a radical ecology to really kind of upend how we think about our, our, our imprint on and relationship with nature on a planet of 8 billion people. Those things are happening, but, you know, probably too late to do us a lot of good in our lifetime. So talk about um, I'm looking there at stacks of books for research. Talk about the kind of research you have to do to create an alternate present that reflects the inner reality of our current present and also too that fights the one of the trends i think it's really eerie and kind of weird to watch if you like at night watch television the television the sh programs you're seeing are not showing you reality they're showing you an alternate reality that no longer exists I mean, there is not a single drama on TV where people are wearing masks and, and shut in at home all the time because it, it would be kind of dull, <laughs> maybe, or somewhat off-putting. And, and so I think all of us have this real feeling of unreality because the fiction and, and our, our understandings of ourselves is based on something that is no longer applicable. And I think your books are based on things that are still applicable, and that's what makes them so powerful. 
There is there is one uh, form of fictional entertainment in which uh, everybody's wearing masks that I get every day, which is if you read the daily newspaper comics, the funnies, they still have the like serious strips. And this is what my morning routine before I even sit down at my desk, I read this, I get it by email now and I get like a series of these vintage comics as well as the new ones. And so like all the characters and like Judge Parker and Mark Trail and Rex Morgan, MD, they're all now dealing with the pandemic because those things are like, they're always like just like two weeks out of real time. And of course they have their own weird relationship with time, but, um, but that's a digression. How do you create that world? I mean, um, I mean, for me, it originally started as a necessity of the kind of story I wanted to tell, which was with Tropic of Kansas. I wanted to tell a story about, a popular uprising in the u.s like a revolution something like what was going on you know at the time i started thinking about the book around the time of the arab spring and that was kind of going on with the occupy movement and so on it was kind of like well what would happen if you had like occupy with ak-47s or something and um and so i realized that for that to happen you would need a the, the the U.S. would need to be a lot more screwed up than it was. So I just started like looking around me at the things that seemed more kind of third world, right? And um, you know, like driving back back and forth between Texas, where I live, in Austin, and and uh, the kind of Corn Belt Midwest where I grew up and where I still have a lot of family. And you just like drive around, you see like you know these landscapes that I basically describe in these books of these kind of ecologically exhausted, you know, farm country that reads to many readers as post-apocalyptic. But when I was writing, it felt like just, you know, reporting what I saw. Um, and, you know, the, I mean, everything in these books is sort of, you know, this drawn from something that, you know, that, that I see around me in real life, like the, the idea of a, CEO president when I invented that was not a novel idea even before the current occupant of the White House came on the scene and um, this kind of dystopian legal system you know basically domesticates the kind of system you have in place in Guantanamo and that we've had in place here at times in the past and martial law and um, the um, and with failed state you know the I mean, there are kind of two core elements. One is the idea of this like tort law system, you know, the basic kind of schlubby, you know, civil jury trial system. Is that being like the only way, the kind of the fundamental uh, way to get real justice of like suing people for money for bad things they've done uh, when all other aspects of the state have failed? And that's an idea that's really like deeply rooted in our culture, especially in Anglo-American culture, where you can go back to like, you know, the uh, medieval, you know, early medieval England or like medieval, uh, 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 like like in the Icelandic sagas. And it's like there were periods in which tort law was basically the only law and government there was. And so playing with that idea and then playing with the idea of like the autonomous zone. And there are the things like that occur throughout history i mean you know some of them are like counterintuitive like the mormons you know had kind of a series of autonomous zones within the context of the u.s 
uh, Nauvoo was like this little autonomous zone created by the state legislature where the, they could, you know, the members of the LDS church could do whatever they wanted to do. And obviously you have, you know, all sorts of communal experiments and utopian experiments throughout American history. So there's a lot of material there to, uh, to work with. And, uh, and so, yeah, I try to kind of, you know, dine at the smorgasbord of ideas and, you know, uh, <laughs> do the things I want to put on my particular plate <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, uh, see what kind of a story I can conjure from it. One of the things that uh, you do in this book, I think really well, is it's it's really a page turn. And one of the page turning aspects is is uh, tweezing out the backstory of of Donnie and and, and the president. And, and so I, I really love that idea because again, these kind of things are unfolding right now. And, and so talk about, um, when you were writing this, uh, I, I imagine that the current occupant of the White House was 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 there, and how much of that informed your vision of, of this book and just of this world. I mean, I, I mean, it's always there. Of course, you're living in the world you live in, and it bleeds into whatever you do. But, but, I mean. With these books, I'm always consciously trying to not comment on the world in which I'm writing, to not be overtly topical in that way. Um, you know, the president of these books, this kind of authoritarian figure, he's, he's uh, you know, he was imagined before the current occupant of the White House, and he's more about the, just like the on one level, the figure of like the bully boss, mm -hmm. you know, which is really like somebody we all have dealt with or by the, most of us have dealt with who had to work, you know, kind of typical jobs, uh, corporate jobs or just any job. Right. We all know what that's like, especially the kind of a, like phone throwing, you know, egomaniacal CEO who's just all about how they're there to implement change and end up trashing the place and, you know, uh, whatever there is of value, they usually take with them when they leave in a severance package. And um, uh, so it's kind of playing around with that. But it's also, Rick, trying to dig into the the thing that as a lawyer really always bothers me of how, you know, there's never really any justice for the crimes of our politics that... Um, you know, a lot of really bad things have happened in the course of my lifetime, you know, in the name of uh, the country and, you know, that I have done my small part to help pay for as a taxpayer and whatnot, whether it's, you know, uh, foreign wars or, you know, programs of torture by another name. Uh, and um, and that idea of like, yeah, what would it look like to get like actual truth and reconciliation you know, for things like, you know, the kinds of things that went on during the war on terror, or if you actually had like, you know, kind of bona fide domestic war crimes. I mean, there are things that I think are, you know, at the edge of that morally, like what's going on with, you know, asylum cases at the border with, you know, infant children being, you know, sent across the border into, you know, Mexico accompanied by no one other than some six or eight year old sibling, right? I mean, 
you know. Um, so it's in conversation with those things in terms of like trying to just like through a mirror, like say like, at what point do we start to figure out a way to hold people accountable for things that normally because they are politics, you know, they just kind of get pushed into the past, right? that I think is this book it does really well this book reminds me in a sense I think this is like one of these books are the great novels of Kurt almost like Kurt Vonnegut could have written in 1970 in a sense uh, trying to imagine like a, a, a dystopian future reminds they remind me a little bit of, of Cat's Cradle in a way and, and so I, I'd like you to talk about that, the sensibility of, uh, you know, how does your vision of the past end up in the future, in, in, in your recreation of the present? And talk about, too, about what kind of research, how do you marinate the sensibility that creates these books in, like, what you read and what you what what you consume as as a reader and, and just as a citizen citizen I mean I, I imagine that large parts of this must be um, the result of, of standing in a courtroom mm. yeah I mean I go I mean I'm not a trial lawyer myself uh, but I go and spend a lot of I, I've spent a lot of time in the courtroom uh working on cases in other respects and i spent a lot of time on these books just going to the courthouse and watching cases i mean one one memorable one i watched researching this book was uh i went and watched a uh, sanctions hearing in uh one of the cases in which uh, some of the sandy hook parents you know the parents who lost their children in that gun massacre at the school mm -hmm. in connecticut uh, are suing uh, Austin uh, uh, internet personality Alex Jones uh, for you know liable and other things for his basically allegations that uh, that the whole thing was staged and that the parents are actors, right? So I went down to this hearing to watch you know a kind of a and it's in like a, and these hearings are taking place in state court here in Austin, you know the kind of most mundane part of the American justice system, just where like kind of local losses happen, not like the federal courthouse uh, where the, the big cases go. And it was a trip. I mean, just the character of these kinds of, you know, like these plaintiff's lawyers from Houston, you know, this guy's like, you know, with the kind of, they're like, you know, playing to type and, um, you know, with the kind of like bad, you know, bad suits and, you know, vaping in the hallway during breaks and, yeah, just like, and then these kind of like, you know, second or third tier, like business lawyers defending Alex Jones. And then like 
the crazy, you know, character of Alex. He did not show up in person, but he appeared like on a monitor in like a 20 minute uh, uh, series of rants about the case that was played for the judge, which was a surreal experience. Um, but so um, how you go about researching stuff like this, you do some of those kinds of things, but then it's like deep reading. I mean, I read, I was looking for, you know, a variety of material. I mean, this book is trying to riff on a kind of a a deeply like post-colonial vibe. So you think about books that take place in the aftermath of revolution or in the aftermath of um, independence movements, uh, you know, kind of like the, a lot of Graham Greene novels have that kind of, you know, his kind of great novels of the 50s and 60s. So like The Comedians is a good example. I reread The Comedians, which is about this guy, uh, you know, going back to Haiti during the midst of the revolution. Um, and, uh, and then reading like histories about truth and reconciliation movements, right. And about justice in the aftermath of revolution and uh, drawing heavily on a trip I made in the eighties to Sandinista, Nicaragua as a young, like college journalist where I got to see, you know, that kind of up close and personal. Um, and then I did a lot of reading of like, really great ancient lawyer stories like uh, the Oresteia of Aeschylus and, you know, which is kind of about the founding of the justice system. And then Njal's saga, which actually ends up gets in mentioned in the book. Yeah. Which is, you know, that was about, fascinating. <laughs> it's the only one what? of the Viking so Icelandic sagas that's about a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about a lawyer who's like really good at the arcane procedure of, you know, Icelandic law, which was basically the only real government they had, uh, where they'd all kind of get together at a big outdoor fair every summer and, you know, settle their disputes. And everybody's always making fun of the lawyer in the book because he can't grow a beard. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I, I, I imagine there'll be uh, uh, another book to, to follow this up. Um, there will be, I think. But uh, I don't think that'll be my next project. And I think, I mean, um, I like this. It's not, these these books work together. It's not a trilogy, but it's kind of like a triptych, you know, which suits, mm -hmm. which suits the material, which is kind of like a Hieronymus Bosch triptych in a way, um, with this book being the kind of the Garden of Earthly Delights version. And, uh, and uh, uh, but I'm interested in... Uh, I mean, I love this character and I love writing lawyer stories. Like I said, you know, I had never really thought about them much until I, uh, uh, you know, had to invent one. And um, and it's a really, you know, it's a unique uh, it's a unique character type and it's a unique form and it's a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to doing more. And um, uh, what is your next I don't, project? I'm I'm looking at doing something that's a little bit more of like a, a kind of an upending of the cozy catastrophe novel, a, a kind of a, a kind of an eco horror almost you might say the sort of story in which sort of horror story in which the thing that's scary is the idea of our climate future, and I love these stories of. Um, you know, there's this kind of classic story archetype, the cozy catastrophe was the term Brian Aldous coined to describe it in 
the paradigmatic example of which is The Day of the Triffids by John Wyndham, where oh, one the of world my favorite came... books and movies. I, when I was a kid, I remember seeing that movie on black and white in the afternoon. I watched it about five times. I love that. Killer plants, right? Who doesn't love killer plants? And <laughs> it's like those stories they always have, you know, the small group of uh, protagonists who are managing to survive rather comfortably as everyone else around them is dying off and seeming to kind of enjoy it. And so I want to kind of turn that story on its head um, and again, write something set in, in a world that feels very contemporary, but a little bit of a, a mirror. And uh, yeah, and with with Failed State, I really was playing, I played a lot with integrating nature writing into novel writing. Yeah, that's one of the things that you have been writing a wonderful blog, um, Field Notes. So talk about, because I could feel that that rippling through this. And you're writing in that. You're a fantastic nature writer. That's a different uh, shtick. But, I mean, you're, you really have a talent for it and also for the photography that accompanies it. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, that I, I started that project... Um, you know, right after I finished the revisions on this uh, book, Failed State, at the beginning of the year. And uh, I had had a conversation with the mystery writer, Adrian McKinty, about... Oh, he's great. Right. Yeah, and he writes these, like, Northern Ireland-based, uh, Belfast-based crime novels about a police detective in Belfast. And, and he was joking about how he always wants to write, like, lengthy bird-watching scenes in his, you know... <laughs> police detective novels and how the editors are always like, come on, you can't do that. And I was like, why can't I do that? And so it was almost like I said, dare. So I'm sort of like uh, indulging that notion uh, by making it kind of central to the plot in a way of like the lawyer who ends up, you know, uh, paying half of his time, paying attention to the natural world around him in these weird cities he's visiting. Um, but yeah, so I started doing a, just a weekly newsletter of um, uh, urban nature writing, particularly, you know, and I'm really interested in uh, and have in the past decade been accumulating all this material about uh, the kind of the, the, you know, the traffic island or the empty lot or the, um, you know, uh, frontage road median or the, or the, you know, the line of the boulevard as a, as as a, a kind of a an undiscovered wilderness, and there's a rich tradition of that kind of writing in in, Eng, in England, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, but there's very little of that here. You know, we romanticize our great national parks and the remnants of the wilderness we have, but we don't pay a lot of attention to the uh, the wild aspects of the city and that idea of like seeing the city as a uh, as an eco as a as an ecology as an ecosystem, it's a rather large it's, ant hive. <laughs> so I yeah, I, the, we we live in our own form of termite towers. You know, you're talking about the, in England. One of the great horror writers, Robert Aikman, whose whose horror fiction is truly brilliant. Um, he was also he was very interested in nature writing as well. He wrote about all the urban waterways. He was an absolute fiend for that and, and compiled a, 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 quite a bit. And, and I can see the parallel here is 
with you because your first work that I ever encountered was a horror anthology that you created. So talk about the, the because I think horror and science fiction do very similar things and what you do with science fiction is a lot like what horror does in terms of just uh, re rewriting the, re the real world uh, just from a, a different perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, the anthology you're talking about, it's, it's, uh, it's the kind of Mexican take on horror, and especially the unique way in which um, it's a kind of horror writing that doesn't purport to be horror writing. Mm -hmm. It's just a kind of uh, use of the fantastic to describe real life uh, in contemporary Mexico uh, through the eyes of particular writers and protagonists in a way that feels like horror because the things you're writing about in real life are, are scary things. And I think, you know, one of the things I've uh, learned from workshopping with horror writers at some of the, you know, uh, kind of fantastic fiction workshops I've been lucky enough to uh, participate in um, has been like the power of the non-redemptive narrative um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, science fiction often doesn't, you know, uh, use that power. And I just think it's like, it's just tremendous when you kind of like deliver a, a somewhat downbeat or compromised ending. I think that it's kind of, um, it's got a lot of, a lot of potency to it. And, um, and then like the, you know, nature writing intrinsically gets up close to the edges of horror because you know nature is really beautiful but it's also really scary and brutal and you know i think in a lot of respects all horror writing is a kind of a a, a dark mirror version of nature writing um what an interesting <laughs> perception that's really smart well i i look forward to 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 your work uh, of eagle horror um and and also i think i'll be reading field notes with a, <laughs> a different slightly different eye which is is good uh um is there any, these books that seem to me to be uh tailor-made for some kind of like really dark netflix series <laughs> Is there is there any hope with that? There's there's been you know a, a kind of uh, there's a group trying to who's been trying to uh, develop a deal around rule of capture in particular, and um, you know that's kind of been kicking along here. Uh, I think the pandemic has had things you know somewhat uh, 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 slowed down across the you know Hollywood production environment, but. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, that kind of elevator pitch, Better Call Saul meets 1984, <laughs> resonates with people. Um, I'm not sure, uh, you know, that um, I don't know how much, uh, I don't know what the appetite is right now at this particular moment for like dystopian content when we're living in a you know, an already pretty dystopian moment. Obviously, Failed State, the book we're talking about today in particular, is more utopian. And I like to think that that's an important undertaking and one that people would be excited about. But um, but yeah, we'll see. And uh, uh, I think it could be a lot of fun. Now, I have one last question. 
there's a character in, in Veiled State, Marion Abood. I would love to see more. I mean, one of the things about great writing is that you, as a reader, you imagine, you, you encounter characters and you go, boy, I want to know more about them. And, and I want to know more about her. I, I, I can imagine you could do a James Bond kind of thing with her. Uh, James Bond, uh, uh, you know, or, or, you know, Smiley meets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love 28 it. 28 well, yeah. days. <laughs> yeah, well, so Marianne Aboud is the, uh, she's uh, like a deputy commissioner of the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Extrajudicial Executions, which there actually is like a UN agency uh, that's something very close to that. Um, and they typically do reports on, you know, the kind of domestic war and political crimes of dictatorships. And uh, and sometimes deliver, you know, prosecutions to the uh, international legal authorities such as they are. And and here, of course, she's investigating issues around the uh, death and disappearance of the deposed American president, uh, which is a kind of a fun idea to play with. And yeah, you know, that's a really interesting idea, because I was thinking how. One thing I want to do with these stories is if I is if and when I get around to another one in this the world of this these books, which is really kind of each book is its own world in a way, but is to escape the confines of the U.S. and to kind of see what's going on in the rest of the world. These three books are so like intrinsically American, um, even as they're trying to find their way to a global future. Um, it would be fun to see, yeah, what other cases. Uh, Deputy Commissioner Abood might be working. That's a good prompt. These books are American, I think, like Steinbeck. This is kind of uh, the uh, the grapes of wrath again. I love that. I'll take that. Yeah. I've been speaking with Christopher Brown. His new novel is Failed State. It's a utopian novel, and it's not uh, nonfiction yet. Thanks for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me, Rick.